1: Wherever podcasts are
0: available. Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to Muses.
2: Enjoy the show. Hey there. So, the interview you're about to hear is with Roxana Shirazi. And I'm really excited about this one. I know Lynx is really excited too. Absolutely. Uh, we covered her book back in episode 19 and we're on episode 102, 102 think, now yeah. so it's always a uh, a nice goal realized you know dream come true when you get to interview somebody whose work that you admire and then you get to um chat with them about their work and their past and their upcoming stuff and I had met Roxana a couple summers ago um Back in the UK, and so it was nice. It was nice to chat with her.
3: Yeah, it was great. Roxana is the author of *The Last Living Slut*, born in Iran, bred backstage, and she also has an upcoming book called *Dead Iranian Girl*. She's also a teacher and journalist. She discusses such issues as sexual sexual politics and gender theory.
2: Yeah, and her journalism covers interviews with the KKK. We talk
3: a little bit about. Yeah, she's. Certainly has a fascinating life story, and uh, she's she's amazing. It was really an interesting discussion. We talk about you know backstage debauchery, what it was like then versus now. Uh, some of the misogyny in the rock and roll world things she's experienced
2: yeah it being a boys club and we just talk about equality and then the roles of men and women in uh, the music industry yeah, yeah we talk about Mötley Crüe we talk about the bu- their book The Dirt which is kind of being made into a film which should be kind of coming out any time
1: now
3: mhm Yeah. And uh, it it was just a fantastic conversation and I'm excited to put this one up and hear what everyone has to say. Yeah. Enjoy.
4: Absolutely. (laughs) Let's go.
3: Amazing. Well, we kind of like to start back at people's childhoods and you certainly have a fascinating childhood. Um, Your early childhood was spent in Iran during the revolution. I'm curious, what was that like? And I read that you had some politically activist
4: parents. Yeah um so yeah it was a very political childhood um, I grew up during the rev- just like before and after the revolution and my family were full on intense political activists um my uncles my aunts my mum's cousins so I grew up in a household with surrend like it was I was surrounded by books political books and uh, people coming in and out political prisoners people going on demonstrations. I was right in the thick of it. So you were ten when you moved to England with your grandma? Yes, I was sent here under the guise of a a vacation. So I I, I wasn't aware that I was going to be sent here permanently. So my grandmother accompanied me, and she unfortunately died a couple of months later. Um, And I was kind of, it was a very traumatic year for me, being a child alone in England without speaking English without having a family, being hungry all the time, um, and being racially bullied. And it was like one of the worst years of my life. So it was a shock to my system to come from a very warm, loving community of cousins, friends, great school in the Tehran, fantastic life, you know, we had money, everything, to being completely and utterly alone and racially bullied every day.
3: Wow. Did you know much about England before you arrived there? Like, I I assume that sort of expectation versus reality of the situation was like such a shock for you.
4: You know, as a child, I was 10, you sort of think, you don't think about, I mean, maybe I thought it was like Mary Poppins, like (laughs) pretty cute, lovely coloured, like a child's imagination about another country in a very Disney-fied way. it was just like, yeah, it's fun. You get on an airplane, go to another country. You don't think about the repercussions of that. Like, you just think you're going there and it's gonna be fun. But yes, yeah, so it was a huge shock to my system, absolutely, Yes. Yeah.
3: Were you still in contact with your parents?
4: I used to write letters. Um, so I used to write letters to my mother and she's collected them all and she shows me now. And she's, it's so they're so funny because like the letters talk about like really cool stuff like I'm seeing these guys with Mohicans on their head and they're called rockers, mm-hmm. and they have tattoos and they're so cool and different and I want to be like that. I'm like I was ten from Iran and I was like writing this to my mother it's really funny and um and then I'm writing about really political stuff too like the social classes how. Which 10-year-olds write about social class? It's really funny. And um, so, yeah, I used to write to my mother all the time, but I was just a lost kid in an alien land. I, I was just lost completely. I was in shell shops, actually. Yeah. Oh,
2: I love the way that you wrote about it and, that you wrote, and the way that you wrote about your childhood. And I felt that I was transported and I was there with you just based on the way that you wrote, and so I was so fascinated by your book that, you know, Lynx and I have been doing this podcast now for two years, more than two years, and, and your book was one of the first episodes that I ever, uh, you know, it's one of the earlier ones where I really got to explore those things. Um, so besides writing the letters uh, to your mom, did you grow up writing? Um, was literature always an important part of your life?
4: Yeah, so um, as soon as I could read and write, when I was about five... I started reading lots, and I was given political books by my uncles, I was five and six, and my parents, my, I don't have, I never had a father, but my mother and my uncles, they were all quite um, into art and literature and theatre, so I w- they were very creative, so they were giving me books on all sorts of things as a child, so I was quite a well-read child and understood the world that we lived in. Um, and I read lots of books, and I started writing. um, I think I started writing properly when I was alone in England and had nothing, I didn't know how to express myself. so I started writing about everything, so from that age, really.
3: Yeah, it's so important uh, in those situations to find an outlet. You know, if, if you can't have, if you don't have a whole bunch of friends to speak to, at least you're you're getting that out and you're you know yeah it's, it's therapeutic
4: oh completely because i think if you have suddenly been thrown into the wilderness from a country like iran which has got very rich culture family culture the food the colors the nature and you're suddenly thrown into the ghetto part of england which was a part in manchester which is devoid of color it's very gray it's kind of a lot of poverty and you're quite a well-read child and you're quite a social child but you've got nothing, no one to talk to, then you take to writing to kind of have an outlet, like you said, Mm to sort of just really bring out, you know, spew out your feelings, really.
3: So who are your literary idols?
4: Um, Now or? Uh,
3: Now and then.
4: Um, Hmm. I love Sylvia Plath. Um, I, I love her poetry. It's very me. I know it's very depressing, but it's just me. Um, I love um, um, a writer called Michael Michael Cunningham, who wrote The Hours, oh, yeah. um, which made into a film with Nicole Kidman and Mel Street. The Hours, and that's about Virginia Woolf. I love Virginia Woolf as well. Um, I love a writer called John Niven, who wrote a book called Kill Your Friend, and it's about the rock, rock well, the music industry in the 90s, you know, with the whole Brit pop thing. Mm-hmm. And he was an A&R guy in the 90s. He used to scout for bands like Coldplay then. He turned down Coldplay and Muse. And he wrote a book called Kill Your Friend. It's, it's black comedy. It's a bit like American Psycho. And it's about the, you know, his life in the music industry. And it's hilarious. It's very dark. It's very un-PC, and it's crazy, and I really like the way he writes. It's very biting.
2: That sounds great, actually. I, I really do like uh, the book American Psycho, and I'm a big Betty Snellis fan. And Didn't you and I go, were we at the Jack the Ripper Museum when we?
4: Yes, we were, oh,
2: yes. So we kind of like that kind of, we have that in common, that we like a good kind of dark oh. tale. Yeah.
4: Absolutely. I love the- I love human human things. I don't like people who censor or sort of shy away from... Whether it's gross, grotesque, or, you know, it's kind of raw and crude. I like people who are honest when they write.
2: And I think that's what got me so much with your book and how it was not like anything I had ever read before. And then just getting to know you and following you on social media and um, just how honest how open um you speak freely you say what's on your mind and it's almost uh it's almost rare i think to find in some people so that's why i think i was just drawn to your story and and who you are and how you speak about like the good the bad the ugly
4: yeah so I believe in humanity. I think that um, there always has been different rules for men and women So throughout history. Men like Henry Miller, Charles Bukowski, Hunter S. Thompson are applauded and idolized for writing in very raw and human terms about um, their sexuality, their, their class, their working class background, their poverty, and they are because it's a masculine you know, masculine constructed, societies constructs masculine as being um, able to be uh, humanity in its full capacity, whereas women have to be selective in how they express those things. So because femininity is constructed as, you know, pretty, soft, satin sheets, four-poster beds. So when women have written about sexuality, it's, if you look at Anais Nin, it's all within the context of, Satin sheets, princes, um, four posts of bed, wealth, there is nothing about STDs, um, nothing about poverty, hunger, it's got to be pretty, it's got to be cutesy, um, and even when women have in the 60s and 70s with second wave feminism wrote about sexuality, it was like it was bound. Ba- it was bound within things like child abuse or violence. So there always has to be a reason for female sexuality. Wow, it's either you've been sexually abused or something traumatic happened to you, um, or like it's within the bounds of like you know um, wealth, like sex in the city. You know there's sex, but only if it's upper class, wealthy women spent wearing designer labels. You know women have not been able to write like men do about class, you know, about raw in a raw way. So why? Why is that one rule for men? And Why? I don't understand that. It's just illogical. So just be yourself as a human being. That's it. <laughs> so
3: when did sexual politics and gender theory become an uh, important part of your life, a fascination for you, something you really wanted to, you know, discuss. Um,
4: I, it, there was never a point where I thought I'm going to discuss this. It was just through lived experience as I'm like, getting older and wiser. Um, it was just experiencing life and understanding that there are always different rules for men and different for women. Um, and I was just like, just it's very strange. It's bizarre to me we don't live in Saudi Arabia, we live in the Western world, so why are women are demonised for what, our men are heroes or idolised for doing the same thing. So it wasn't like a, at one point I thought, right, I'm going to get into gender. It was just like living life and witnessing things and understanding society's uh, reactions and, you know, and, and reflections on different gender issues that I began to kind of question things and just talk about it.
3: You discuss in your book, you know, leaving home as a teenager, and one of your first jobs was working as a dancer. Uh, Was that an empowering experience for you?
4: I don't think it's ever empowering to, um, to run away from home due to your stepfather beating you and having to do something. I mean, I was always very sexual as a child. Um, I was very sexual as a teenage girl. I never had sex with boys until I was 24. I was very sexual. Um, I had a big sexual appetite. Um, So, and I was quite an extrovert. I was always performing since I was like five singing and dancing and acting. Um, So the first logical thought for me was to dance, to earn money when I ran away. And I think it was like, I don't mind being on a stage. I like it. I'm quite extroverted and I don't mind stripping. It wasn't. I don't think it's emp. I didn't. I didn't think of it in that way, empowering or not empowering. It was just like, oh, I like this activity. Just want to do it because I like it. It's fun. Um. So I did it, and yeah, I mean, I was. I'm, I'm quite an extrovert. Some people are not. I'm not saying, you know, stripping or any kind of thing is applicable to everybody. Every human is different. It just happens that I'm quite extroverted and I enjoy certain things that some girls might not. So, you know, you can't just put the same kind of model of empowerment for every woman. Every woman's empowered by different things. Support for today's show comes from Lola.
3: Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton, tampons, pads, liners, and all-natural cleansing wipes. Unlike other major brands, Lola products are 100% natural and easy to feel good about. No BS, mystery fibers, or doubts about what's going in your body. Plus, Lola products come in a simple, customizable subscription. Lola will deliver exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. Did you know the FDA doesn't require brands
2: to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products? So most don't. I love that Lola offers complete transparency about the ingredients found in their
3: tampons, pads, liners, and wipes. Major brands use a mix of synthetic ingredients in their products, including rayon and polyester. Their feminine care products may also be treated with harsh chemical cleansing agents, fragrances, and dyes. Lola products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemical fragrances, synthetics, or dyes. That is super important to me. Lola also helps make your
2: month a little bit easier. Their subscriptions are fully customizable, so you can choose a mix of products, mix of absorbency, number of boxes, and frequency of deliveries. Lola subscriptions are super flexible. You can change, skip, or cancel your subscription at any
3: time. Something else that I absolutely love about the company is that with every purchase, Lola donates feminine care products to homeless shelters across the U.S., so a purchase for yourself goes to help others as well. For 40% off all subscriptions, visit
2: MyLola.com and enter the promo code MUSES when you subscribe. For 40% off all subscriptions, visit MyLola.com and enter the promo code MUSES when you subscribe. M-Y-L-O-L-A dot com, promo code MUSES, M-U-S-E-S. We have uh, interviewed someone who um, was a dancer, and she did describe that experience as that, but I love your perspective and your take on it. And while, like, I'm so excited to get into, like, there's so many things I want to dive into here. So exciting. Um, And, you know, I want to talk about things that you're presently working on and in the future, but I I still want to talk about your book for a second, that's almost 10 years old now, and it's called The Last Living Slut. Do you think that um, if you would have published that book today, that it would have been received um, in any other kind of way? How was it received in 2010 when you were talking freely, openly, honestly about sexuality, masturbation, um, music, rock and roll? Demonization of women
4: so in the u k is very different to North America, the media um, what I found that was um, when my book came out, my first book, um, I found that u uh, k media wouldn't was the only country who wouldn 't interview me for the book, and they changed the cover and they were very reluctant to publicize the book um, That's interesting yeah, it was the only country, and the reason is that the UK has very rigid categories for diversity. It's like they say that if you are a Middle Eastern woman, you have to be a specific way. I find it a very cliché version of a Middle Eastern woman. And because I wasn't that cliché version, I was a woman, Middle Eastern woman who wrote about sex and rock and roll. They felt uncomfortable publicizing my book at all, or me, and they were very scared to even um, put the original cover in the bookshelves. So I was discriminated against a lot and um, when I couldn't get any jobs, like I can't get any jobs here. Oh, no. Okay. Um, so whenever I applied for journalism jobs, everything I did was American based. So every time I applied for jobs here, um, I, they just would say no, no, no. And it's only, it's been nine years now, it's only recently I found out from lots of sources in the media that... They would Google me, and they don't like a woman who writes about politics, Islam, sex, and has sexy pictures. And they wouldn't take me on. And I think that's a kind of discrimination. Totally. And I just think, I love, in America, it's so different, because they love me, and they would (laughs) offer me things, or I would get published there, even with my new book as an American publisher. So, um, yeah, I found a huge amount of discrimination, because because of no reason because of what I wear or because of what I write so and that's only UK media and nowhere else that must be really frustrating for you um it's horrible it's like being a gay man in the 90s <laughs> yeah it's kind of like you can't because of your sexuality it's like I haven't committed a crime I haven't killed anyone you know it's like you can't just discriminate me because of what I wear or write so yeah it's been really horrible and frustrating and kind of you know just not being able to get jobs so yeah and a lot of things i did from 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 other countries so
2: i mean to hear that about the uk like i'm not shocked and i'm not
3: surprised for some reason but it's not right and it's super shitty
4: it's called othering which means yeah. they treat someone who's not who's other than white differently they walk around eggshells like why wouldn't they publicize my book why as a human story why would they not interview me or want to have the original cover of me in the bookshelves, that's sort of saying you're different. We don't want to talk about your human story.
3: That's, <laughs> that's really their loss.
4: Do you think that that's
3: going to change at all?
4: No, I don't. I think that with my second book, <clears> they'll <throat> um, be the same. Because for them, Middle Eastern women should be a stereotype. Either the oppressed victim like, refugee, oh, God, you know, I escaped Iran, you know, um, or the Muslim woman, or, like, someone who, who doesn't have sexy pictures, who's, like, an <coughs> academic. You can't be both. You can't be a woman who has both, and both academic and teaching and have sexy pictures. Why can't I be both? You know, That's so a I,
3: really good question.
4: You're not allowed as a woman to be both. Russell Brand is. He can talk about politics and talk about sex, but a woman can't. And in America, yes, I found it is, you can be, like, New York especially is, like, full of every type of person, but UK media is so backward. It's, t- it's called othering. They like to, you know, the other has to be a specific category and stick to that category, you know. So, and I operate outside those frameworks, so they were like, no, no, well, you can't, you're not that category, you
2: know? Yeah, we <laughs> really do. We can't really fit you into a category.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was met by so many different reactions. It's just, I think for me, like, I loved Motley Crue's book, The Dirt. Mm. And I was really like, I was like, I fucking love this band. They're so, like, crazy. And I was thinking, I have a similar life, and, but I'm a woman. And, I, and, you know, why shouldn't I write about it? They did. Um, so in 2000, I had a fantastic reaction, like, from lots of people for just being myself, you know, unvarnished, unglossy, just a human being. Um, and then, I, I don't know, I mean, I did. not have anything bad reactions. Only from, I mean, if, if people haven't read it and they just see the word slut on the cover, they, th- you know, th- they might be very narrow-minded about it. But people who read it, um, 99% was a really positive reaction. To me, the emails that I received, the thousands from all over the world, I'm not talking about the Western, I'm talking also about other parts of the world that you might not consider where women are, kind of, there's a lot of oppression of women. Um, so, you know, uh, for me, it was positive reaction. I think people who are logical and will read someone's human experience, are not going to vilify that person for writing about their humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I get, I've had... People I've come to uh, loggerheads with, uh, other rock stars that I have sort of dated since, who have themselves written books with about graphic details of their sexuality, and they've said, "Oh God, Dave, we've got to keep our um, dating a secret because you wrote a book." And I'm like, "Yeah, but so did you." And they're like, "Yeah, but I'm a guy." I'm like, "Really? That's really crazy."
0: You can shop from anywhere, doing pretty much anything.
1: Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Boucher, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hyperthetical. On Hyperthetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts.
4: And these are guys that I would consider the most down-to-earth rock stars. You know, guys that I think you're one of the good ones. <laughs> you're one of the nice ones and they're kind of still so backward it's like it's like they're so living in the 1950s it's really strange to me Um, one rock, very legendary rock star I was seeing and he was just so lovely as a guy and so sweet and, and, and but his mentality was very much like you wrote a book and I'm like yes and you did too and he, and he kept saying it's different and I'm like how? I don't understand and I was really shocked and surprised, and I realized it applied to a lot of ro- other rock stars, you know, like some of the guys in the Dead Daisies, uh, some of the Motley Crue guys, you know, who've also written books. And it's just shocking to me at this day and age. It's like I'm living in a Muslim country. Their approaches towards women, it's really like, no, women have to have a specific designated role, but men have a different role. It's really funny and backwards. It, it It is so backwards, and
3: Shanti and I were talking about this as well, how um, a lot of times when women write <coughs> a memoir, just like the men who have written a memoir, for some reason, it, media or people in society sort of look at the women's memoirs like, oh, maybe they're after money or fame or something, as opposed to like... Like that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, as opposed to like just wanting to share your story, the female side of things, uh everyone who's been there is a historian in their own right, and why should the like rock star own that story more than you know the women who are also there it's It takes two to tango like why why um, should one kind of be able to own it more than the other?
4: Because it's still in two thousand nineteen women and men are not equal and that's the real truth of it I mean it, it's not I'm not going to whine about it it's just a logical fact you know I mean um, you look at someone like Russell Brand you know he's he's political he's intelligent he's a comedian he's written two books on lots of sex he's talked about graphic sex with Kate Moss something about Courtney Love something about this and that quite graphic stuff I and mean, he's like a hero he is an idol he's idolized and it's just normalized into our society, it's part of our society that male masculinity and sexuality naturally go together, but female and sexuality is problematic, and we have to get to the root of that, why is it problematic if you're a human being, regardless of your gender, and this this is a long, long-standing historical uh, sort of mentality and approach towards women I mean, I'm sure it's, it's getting better, but it's because of so many aspects. I think it's getting better with the younger generation, you know, because women, younger, like teenage girls and boys do kind of say, well, I'm doing the same thing as a boy. It doesn't matter. I'm still a human being. But um, I think, especially in the world of rock and roll for me, I found this really backward mentality um, because we still got working with this outdated model of machismo and masculinity in rock and roll, where women are, supposed, are a secondary role to the men. Men are the primary role, se- central stage. Women have to be of service and subservient to a man. So for me, rock and roll has been extremely a misogynistic place, um, where it's like a playground, but only the boys are allowed to play the rules of rock and roll. Women have to be a bit more constricted and hold back from the same rules as the boys,
2: yeah, you had mentioned that um, motley Crue's the dirt like there's no female fronted or, or or girl brand, girl bands that have ever been or have ever could get away with um what they got away with like w- Is there any equivalent, any female rock star, any girl group that has, like, reached any kind of level of excess like that? What would that even look like?
4: Well, I mean, Madonna has talked about this a lot, and so has Courtney love. Um, Madonna said that when she was becoming famous, and she was um, quite sexual and dating, and, and she was constantly vilified about it in the press. And she was going, hold on a minute, but, but Prince is doing the same thing. Or, like, you know, Mick Jagger is the same. I'm a musician. Why is Mick Jagger, like, there's different rules for him. Or Jimmy Page. So it's kind of like, you no, know, I mean, in rock and roll, I think specifically, in my experience, and I've been around rock stars and musicians since, I don't know, 2003, 4, And it's just, it's just, you know, it's not... It's not deliberate or in a bad way. It's just deeply embedded, this ideology. You know, Courtney Love, you know, she gets a lot of crap. And, you know, it's Madonna did. And, yes, if there was a group like Motley Crue that was female and they wrote a book about the most graphic details of of their vaginas and really extremely graphic, pornographic stuff, they would be hugely demonised. There wouldn't be a film being made about their life. There wouldn't be heroes like Motley Crue or like Tommy Lee. Is. Tommy Lee wrote a book about, uh, of his own, about just his penis. <sighs> yeah, of his dick. Yeah, can you can imagine like a woman uh, uh, writing about her pussy.
2: <laughs> mm. um, oh. No, I can't. I'm trying to think if Peaches did it at all, but I don't know. Not, not like that. Um, last night I was out at a pretty trendy hipster karaoke bar, which is a Legion, and I saw somebody with a T-shirt. Do you see people there wearing T-shirts that say the future is female?
4: I haven't. No. I haven't. Okay.
2: So it's pretty. It's a maybe it's a Toronto thing. But there's a lot of people that have the future is female shirt. And there was somebody last night, and they appeared to be. I don't know. Um. I'm just saying based on appearances, perhaps non-binary, a gender fluid. And their t-shirt said the future is female ejaculate.
4: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Human, let's just treat human beings by their character and not their sexuality, color, gender, anything, just their humanity and how they are as people, the end,
2: you know exactly. I think that um well, hopefully we're seeing that a lot more in our sort of like younger generations not being wanting like not wanting to be um you know sort of boxed in for lack of a better word, but there's some great like even children's books, uh one for example, is called neither. And uh, essentially, a, a, a book for five-year-olds about not feeling like a boy or a girl, feeling neither, or feeling like both. And when you start early like that, I think it's a good thing.
4: And do you know what? It's all great. And I don't, I, you know, this. I don't want this to make me sound like oh, all serious and politicizing rock and roll. I love rock and roll. I'm all for everyone being as rock and roll as they can, having fun at the amazing, a free-spirited world playground where. You know, it's free love, free sex, people just having fun and the music and the beauty of it. But let's not make it only for boys. Let's make it for everybody, you know. Let's not demonize women for wanting to do what guys want to do. We're all the same in rock and roll. And that was, for me, the spirit of rock and roll has always represented something where you can just be yourself without judgment. But sadly, in my experience, it's not. Because, you see... uh, you see, you know, a lot of people and I think you do yourself and I'm I'm not trying to be um sort of um uh, saying anything bad about anyone, but like someone like Pamela DeBar, which I think she's a great lady, um they, they're like, I want to be a groupie, fine, be that. It's nothing wrong with wanting to be something, but don't think that your role is purely designated to kind of uh having to aspire to, you know, somehow serve someone because of their fame, because your power relations will never be equal. When someone's that famous and you're there for them to sort of be there for them because purely of their fame, then the power is very imbalanced. Um, So it's kind of like, why should you be a secondary role? You know, when I've dated rock stars, I've always said to them, I've always thought, what can they do for me? It's not like, you should be balanced, not someone, me being a secondary role to somebody because of their fame. It's to do with their humanity. And fame is put, put in such a high esteem because of fame. You know, no, look, measure someone by the how they are. You can be very easily starstruck, of course, and be like, oh, my God, I'll do anything. But, you know, try and see that what's in it for you as well. Are you getting the same love and respect and sex, you know? So that's all I've just been saying all along. And
2: now a quick break to tell you about modern fertility.
4: In this day and age,
2: people are waiting to have kids. By the time my mom was my age, 31, she had three kids already. That's right. One, two, three kids. We're up there building careers, being the bosses of our own lives. And maybe we have a bit of a different timeline for having children. So understanding fertility levels and what makes sense and what's possible for us is very important. I wonder what it would look like if I wanted to have kids when I'm 35, let's say. So that's why I'm using modern fertility. Modern fertility can empower you by giving you knowledge into your own fertility. Our hormones are kind of like detectives into our fertility, and that's where modern fertility comes in. So doctors and physicians will study your test results, and by taking the test, they'll let you know if you have more or fewer eggs on average, if you'll hit menopause sooner, if egg freezing or IVF is right for you, it's super easy. So you can go to modernfertility.com slash muses, and you can order your test, which you can take at home or at a lab. It's the only comprehensive fertility hormone test that you can take at home in your jammies. Thank you very much. So they're there to provide help every step of the way, and there's a simple app that you can use. You can use it as a simple timeline so that you're aware of your options because if there's something that uh, we like, its options. So that's modernfertility.com/muses and you can get $20 off a purchase of your kit. You'll submit the test, certified physicians will review it, and then you can better learn to plan your fertility with accurate information. So, do I want to have kids? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm really looking forward to getting my test. I did the quiz online. It was actually super fun. It made me think a lot about my health and what I want moving forwards. And now I'm going to have this knowledge um, whether I want to have children in the next two, three, five years or not at all. Because, like I Said options are our
0: jam.
3: Uh, speaking of you know the rock and roll side, you sort of started your backstage adventures in your mid twenties. Uh, did you did you know what you were getting into? Did you were you a big music fan before that? We've talked about some of the negative aspects like the misogyny that's still you know in that industry and. Uh what are the positives what were some of the things like what do you love about rock and roll what do you love about dating musicians and you know that world
4: Um so in this I always like all the people I love were dead <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling it's, <laughs> the Doors. Um, I always loved John Lennon. Um, the Doors. Um, and I love Jimi Hendrix. I love Janice. I'm just in the wrong era. I love. And um, I always listened to them when I was about. I'd say. I, I love Guns N' Roses too, but I kind of really like the kind of romanticized version, if you like, of the 60s and 70s. For sure. Um, and I was in love with Jim Morrison for as long as I can remember. Uh, and. Um, always loved John Lennon as well and the Beatles not a massive fan of the Stones I don't know why um but yeah so I mean I kind of loved, of course I love the music um and then I guess I never thought I'm going to go and hang out with musicians at all it was I just listened to the music but it just happened by accident and I think it was just um just purely one night accidentally I had a friend who was husband was the manager of the band the stereophonics for a british band yeah um very big in the 90s at uh, the peak and then i went to their house and i met the drummer and he was one of the wildest and craziest guys i've ever met he was free-spirited he was creative he was poetic he was he was just funny and just his character i've never met anyone like such a character. I was just like sitting there looking, and thinking, "God, you're so cool and funny and sexy and just mad." And um, and I started hanging out with him, and and I slept with him. And I thought, "God, this guy's just like me, but a male version." I and mean, he's just so funny and cool to hang out with, and he's good in bed. And then I was like, and then after that, I started going to a couple of award shows, like for Kerrang! magazine. Mm-hmm. At the time I met musicians, they'd be like these out of like bigger, larger than life characters, and I'd, I'd love their company, and it was fun. And then I went on tour with Velvet Revolver, and um, met few guys from Velvet Revolver. And I was just like fun at first. It was just fun hanging out with my friends and them. And then when I started actually falling in love and dating, that it was a bit jarring because I wasn't a teenager. I was in my late twenties. An early thirty, so I knew as a woman what was right and wrong. I wasn't starstruck in the same way as a teenager might. So I was like, well, actually, I don't like this. I like you, but why are you being, you know? Just I kind of found some of the things a bit jarring, a bit annoying, and it was just like, well, why can't I do this? And why am I like? It was just I kind of didn't feel right. I still love rock and roll. I love music, um, but like you know. I guess when you are somebody who knows their sexuality, who knows, you know, equality and you kind of start feeling a bit annoyed when sometimes you as a woman in rock and roll can't do what guys do. So it's just annoying and it's a bit like limiting. I want to let go and be free and be wild. I want to be rock and roll. But sometimes I can't. I'm not allowed to be.
2: Oh, I love that. I want to be rock and roll. And I love how, yeah, you're right. Like, it um, it just, it's an expression of something. And it's a feeling and it's wild how, you know, over the generations and through the decades, and Lynx and I have just been exploring this a little bit lately about how, you know, every rock star is trying to almost like one up its previous um generation and then it sort of uh yeah took on a whole life of its own and it's been even a while now since I've been to like local shows and done the backstage thing like is there even a real backstage scene anymore um or did that just sort of burn out and did that get stunted you know is rock and roll still as fun and free and and wild as it ever as as it has been or is
4: that over yeah. No, and there's three reasons for that. One is the internet. People talk on the internet. People have wives and girlfriends. Um, the internet killed a lot of stuff. Um, there is... Uh, there was the advent of AIDS in the 80s. Um, there wasn't that Led Zeppelin-esque free love, free sex, anything goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like people got sober and clean. Members of Guns N' Roses got sober and clean and they are... Uh, how can I put this? Not as fun as you would imagine them to be. <laughs> um, backstage, I always I've been backstage at download music thing ever since 2004, and every year it gets more like oh, organic granola with your chamomile tea. And, and you here's your iPad. So people, it's not, it's a very boring, office atmosphere. The only band who's still rock and roll and wild is Rammstein. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys are in Spain, they, I, I they out-party me. They out-sexualize me. And I'm like, you guys are in your 50s, man. <laughs> like, how? You know? Um, there's no rules for them. They're just crazy Germans. Everything goes. They're like, my, they're like Martin Lutheran in the 80s. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's true. I'm thinking about this um outdoor festival that I was at last summer or something and yeah, the, the the nice tents, the catering, everybody's on best behavior, plus everybody's watching, like everybody's really paying um really close attention. Everybody's under a microscope, I think especially with um Me Too and uh Time's Up. Um
1: Oh, yeah, of course.
4: yeah of course but they shouldn't be it's, it's just it's just wrong and right it's not right. like there shouldn't be blurred lines it's just literally con- like you know don't do that I, no means now the end there's not like i don't know what i did it's just it's just men should understand that it's just no means now that's it. <laughs> you
3: know? speaking more on that and something that's sort of happened with our podcast where, you know, when we discuss these women and uh, the the artist and we learn more about, you know, the background, the that, you know, they're not these gods, they're humans. A lot of them have done things that, you know, are... John Lennon, for example, how he treated Cynthia. Uh, yeah, you know, some of them oh. have been violent with women. Some of them were dating 14-year-olds when they were 20-year-olds, right? Uh, how do you reconcile the art versus the artist? And, like, are you able to diffe- differentiate between the two? And, sh- like, should we be doing
4: that? Um, it's a good question because it depends on the severity of what that artist has done. Um, with Michael Jackson, I have a huge, I mean, pedophilia. Yeah. I can't. I just... I, I, I'm so I just can't. If there's children and rapes and... Yeah. It would pain me to support I can understand as an artist he was talented and a fan- amazing amazing artist. I understand that. As a person hurting children I cannot. I can't say it's okay because he was a great artist. Yeah. Uh um, I can't do that. Um with something like Jimmy Page and the Teenage Girls it's Yes, they were underage, and it's kind of, to me, exploitation, because even if a girl says, yes, I love, I love leather, and guys, I'm willing to, um, it's my choice, yes, it's your choice, but you're not old enough to make that choice with your body yet. You're not, you haven't formed, this is not being patronising to them, it's just, I know that when I was 14, I wouldn't have been able to make the decision that I did after, when I was, like, in my 20s. Um is a bit problematic I, I totally understand because I love John Lennon um, I also love Woody Allen I love Roman Polanski yeah. um, there's a lot of films that Harvey Weinstein made that I love that he produced I, I really love them it's a very difficult choice do you stop listening to that music do you stop watching those films I don't know I don't know it's, it's a really d- difficult question and I think every individual is going to be different um, I think for me, if it's to do with harming children, then I would li- I would stop listening to that person's music. Yes. It's paedophilia. It's just no, no. I don't care who you are. If like say if Jim Morrison was found to be a paedophile, there's no way I would listen to The Doors again. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I'm the same. Where I love Woody Allen, and that's been a difficult blow. And I feel like for me, it's like I'm never gonna financially support anything. You know forward sure you know but yeah it's it's a i guess everyone sort of has to make their own moral judgment on what they're okay with
4: absolutely and i think you have to remember that fame is an extremely powerful aphrodisiac it's replaced religious zeal in terms of hero worship you know whereas in the past people used to worship religious figures when time moved on, and now it's famous people, celebrity is extremely powerful, especially if that person is very talented, and they love the music, they love the film. So separating that is extremely tricky and extremely painful. It's like you're, let, you're cutting off your family, it's cutting off somebody that you've grown to love, you know? Yeah. Individuals. Yeah well let's talk about some of the things that you're
2: working on right now there's there's so many fantastic uh, ways to go with this so where would you like to start we can talk about your journalism or maybe your upcoming book what are you passionate about right now
4: so I have a new book coming out um and it's called Dead Iranian Girl and it's coming out this autumn October or November um and that book is kind of like a follow-up to the first. Um, similar, but not. It's kind of like a. Um, it is a follow-up, but it's not in exactly the same vein as the first book. So, for example, because you know I'm on a blacklist in Iran,
2: mm-hmm.
4: in Iran, so I would get imprisoned. So I paid some smugglers to take me there illegally on horseback. Um, You're so he, brave. Yeah, I'm a bit stupid too. Oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm a bit stupid I mean, I, I love Iran I kind of wanted to experience the Middle East So what I did, I went to Egypt And I went to Jordan And then I went to Turkey So I paid smugglers um, to take me on horseback Through the mountains to Iran So the book isn't just about that It has flashbacks to my life in the West So you get a bit of little bit of the rock legend That I was seeing um, Not his name, I haven't named him um, And you get a little bit of Um my life with a mafia boss in Vegas um, so yeah. it's a contrast and I also I was interviewing the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama and um, I do a bit of crazy stuff so
3: I <laughs> yeah, so also interviewed Richard Ramirez
4: yeah so the serial killer Richard Ramirez he was he's dead now but before he died I was interviewing him about he had a lot of groupies a lot of women, like, can they want to have sex with them? They wanted to. They wanted yeah. to marry.
3: That, that's an interesting element of the groupie dumb as well.
4: Johnson had it, you know?
3: Yeah, for sure. For
4: sure Ted, he had it. And um, I guess a lot of serial killers. Like I said, fame is a very powerful aphrodisiac. And so I was writing to him about all these women, like, and what he thought about it. I mean, he... Because I have a whole stack of letters from him and his photos and his drawings of me, which is really weird. And I feel like I put them in a box and away from my house because I feel they're just negative energy. Yeah. It's so dark. Um, but a fascinating insight into the human mind. So, um, so yeah, I, I kind of the book is about East meets West, so East and Middle Eastern journey, Cairo's a very ancient city, the buildings, the, the you know, the desert, the sand dunes, it's really, and in the contrast of, like, Vegas, there's, like, a neon light, and a massive guy, and his, you know, and his, like, group, and then, like, a little bit about Mandel and a little bit about the guy I was, the rock legend I was seeing, so it's just I, the contrast, and, um, and I always loved Hunter S. Thompson, who interviewed, um, uh The Hell's Angels, and he did all this, stuff. and I liked how he just went on journeys, and he just wrote about it. Yeah, it's great. That's yeah, great. I wanted, I just wrote this journey. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a follow-up, I it guess. Sounds amazing!
2: I'm so excited for it, and I just can't think of like anybody else more perfect to have that kind of story. It's just so unique. It's so you, and I think it's going to be fantastic. Congratulations.
4: Thank you so much. I hope that um, it won't put up anyone who thinks I'm writing a whole rock and roll memoir again uh, because they'll go, oh, I wanted to know what else, you know, just that and that. I'll be like, sorry, there's not only that many names in there of rock stars this time. Sorry.
3: No, just, you know, a whole bunch of other fascinating stories so we can, you know, deal with a no-named rock star here.
4: Yes, absolutely, and I, I, I'm not, I've always been writing, you know, like going to Klux clown thing and stuff, and I always like to write about pe- things that people might not talk about, so hopefully, it's a good read.
3: You've also done some teaching and lecturing, uh, you yes. talk about sexual politics, gender theory, how do you find that experience, and, you know, what kind of discussions do you want to continue to have?
4: Yeah, I've done, like, since my first book came out, i done teaching and lecturing as well, and... Um, I've done a mixture of things. You know, I've also done acting. I've been acting since I was like six years old. Oh, so yeah, I could that's right. See. But um, yeah, the, I mean, the teaching is great and it's really fulfilling and and it's really great. Um, I guess I'm the kind of person that I like to do lots of different things, and that's my downfall. That's my mm. not to want to do all these different things. I've got to stick to one, I and mean, sometimes it's a bit tiring and it's a bit too much. I relate uh, to that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I love the teaching. I think it's great. But I'm quite a wild spirit and I love rock. I'm a rock chick and I can't, I don't see myself teaching full time every day. I need to go and do other stuff like performing or like, you know, different things. So, um, but so far what I've done has been amazing and I have really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed teaching. It's amazing.
2: Well, can we look forward to seeing you, um, like, acting? Are you doing, like, commercials, TV? Do you want to do
4: movies? Yeah, so I went to drama school, like, when I was, like, 21 for three years. And I started doing a lot of theater then. And then when I started writing, I put my acting to the side. But recently I did, like, um, a small part in a BBC sitcom. Oh, cool. Um, It's called Don't Forget the Driver and it was like a comedy and, and I also did a couple of uh, small bits of theater here and there and I love acting I also love writing and yes of course I would hope to continue doing it it would be great um, so who knows what the future holds
2: <laughs> amazing oh, whatever I think whatever it holds for you it's going to be exciting and we're looking forward to celebrating you more and, and seeing where you go because you can, you can do anything look at you
4: I hope so, I just, I'm quite actually, quite a boring person to be honest, I just, my favourite thing is getting in my pyjamas and I'm watching TV, so I'm really not that interesting, I just like to do certain things that might seem interesting, but as a person, I'm a real homebody, trust me.
3: So, is the the rock and roll life sort of on hold right now, do you still go to shows, What do, are there bands, newer bands out there that you're really
4: into? Um... You know, I do go to shows. Um, I, Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel sad that in this world, new and upcoming bands aren't given the exposure and the publicity and the money to do what in the past they were given. They're not encouraged and supported by, by the industry. You know, R&B or Kanye West or American Idol, you know, whatever. They're so commercialized and the spirit of rock and roll is like they're trying to they're trying to you know extinguish it so there is when there's up and coming bands I see and they're amazing I think I wish they'd be given more support by the industry you know Um, I haven't really seen kind of anyone that I've thought there's a new great band I still go to shows and I see like old bands and stuff and it's still people still love rock and roll Um, Like you said, there isn't that kind of backstage debauchery thing at all. Um, But yeah, of of course I love the music. I will continue going to see bands for the music, Um, and it's still there, thankfully. Yeah.
2: Um, Have you seen a trailer for the Dirt movie? Do you think it's going to be good? Do you think it's going to (laughs)
4: suck? What do you think? I I, I saw a little bit, like a clip of the trailer. I think it's a very strange film to make because. If you're going to be true to the book, I've read the book millions of times and it's written by my editor, Neil Strauss, who wrote Marilyn Manson's book as well. Oh. And he also wrote... you read a few biographies of them. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're going to be like the book, you can't make that into a film. It is beyond pornographic. I mean, it's like exploitation to its fullest. The, I don't know if you've read the book, but the thing they made oh, yeah. you... <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, either they're going to whitewash that and disney it and make it a, a kind of family, PG-friendly version of them. Like they did with Bohemian Rhapsody? Exactly. Because, obviously, Freddie Mercury was just insanely demoralist, and they made it like a Disney version of Freddie, you know. Um, so either they're going to do that and make it family-friendly to that, which would be a shame, because Motley Crue were insane. They think they did with Ozzy, like snorting ants and peeing and drinking each other's pee and putting their penises and burritos and stuff. I mean, I love that book. It'd be such a shame if they, like... I'm sure they will, in this age, Me Too and everything, are they going to show all that, what they did to women? I don't think so. So I'm sure what we will be seeing, it will be a kind of cleaner version of them. It's a bit of a shame, but... Mm what can you do? They want to make money out of the film. They're not going to make it that debauched, are they? True. Yeah, so true. Is there anything that we haven't
2: touched on that, uh, or that we've missed that you would like to speak about? We just want to make sure that we've got everything in here and our...
4: Um, no, like, obviously I talked about my new book and everything. I just thought, um, I would really like to see a, uh, kind of... A maybe a round table or kind of like um, somebody to start some sort of event that happens in different countries like Canada UK, America, maybe Germany and stuff of rock and roll women you know whether you follow rock and roll or you are a musician or you're a groupie or anything to get together um, maybe annually and just get together share stories and like Talk about things, have speakers. It'd be a great event to keep the spirit of rock and roll alive. That's,
3: that would be so incredible. I love that yes. idea. It'd
4: be amazing. Yeah,
2: I love it. And if that ever happens, then we'll see you there.
4: Well, you got the contact. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Certain, <laughs> certainly, certainly. We're on. Yeah,
2: we're certainly getting there. Uh, there's, I think, lots of exciting things coming for for us and for you. So definitely. Um, keep in touch and just keep sending each other um this really great abundant
4: energy sure and i hope to see you in toronto because i might be doing a book signing there yes
3: it's oh, so much fun yes we can talk more about
4: the book too absolutely yes i hope to come there and do a signing
2: and yeah it'd be great well anything that you need let us know and we'll help in any way possible okay well, thank, thank you so much. This was um, everything that I hoped that it would be. I really do admire you, and it was really lovely meeting you that one time. And, uh, yeah, I think you're great. Thank you so much.
4: Well, thank you so much for a
3: great interview. Oh, thanks, Roxana. I'm so excited to speak again. Yes,
4: absolutely. Thank you so much. And um, here's to meeting each other in
3: Yeah.
2: yeah. And there you have it. An interview with the amazing Roxana Shirazi. If you want to read more of her stuff and anything from her research papers to her articles, her poetry, then you can go to RoxanaShirazi.co.uk. And if you want to find her on Instagram, then just head over to Roxana Shirazi Official and make sure to get her book, read it, The Last Living Slept. And don't forget to look out for that new book, Dead Iranian Girl, coming out in the fall. Take care, and we'll see you next time.
1: Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show, Hypothetical, is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come, time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.